Well, um, welcome to this 14th segment of this apologetic series that we're going to continue going through today. Uh, let me just kind of give you a rundown over the last couple of weeks. Um, I am on day eight, I believe, in my recovery from getting some pretty pretty severe flu. Uh, I was down for in bed for like three days, couldn't really do a whole lot, and day four, day five, day six, just still had a whole lot of zapped energy and symptoms, and couldn't really sustain anything for more than about five minutes without coughing and. So this is really the first day I've had in about almost a week and a half to come down and try to do a podcast without coughing in your face for um, probably the entire time. And so, praise God, on the mend, I've got my cough drop in my mouth right now, so if you hear uh, something that sounds weird as I'm talking, that's probably it. I'm trying to do it without coughing. Uh, So we'll see how far we get in this one. Uh, Let me just tell you right off the bat on this one. This is probably going to step on some toes. Um, doctrinally, there's a lot of things in which you can step on people's toes, but it doesn't, it doesn't affect them quite to the level of when it becomes personal. And I know I've talked about some regarding divorce and remarriage, and that's a personal topic for a lot of people. I've talked about self-defense, and I've talked about you know, some of this podcast series of going through some, some topics that can be near and dear to your heart because it affects people you love This is one that affects you. And if you are, um, if you are near and dear to your heart, meaning your selfish wants, your desires, then this is probably going to kind of ruffle some feathers for you. But it needs to happen. And I'm going to explain that a little bit when I get into Malachi chapter 2 because I want to kind of expound on this topic. But we're going to go over a, a verse or a passage, series of scriptures in, um, in Psalms 127 that I think is one of the, at the core of passages that get misconstrued, misunderstood, and misapplied today. And so we're going to go right, right into Psalm 127, but just have it at the, at the beginning that I want you to guard what you listen to very carefully and how you listen to it very carefully because more importantly than even those two things, I want you to be very diligent right now to guard your heart. Because as Proverbs tells us, out of it flow the wellsprings of life. And so it talks about keeping your heart vigilantly, of making sure that you're guarding your heart and that your heart is not hardened to truth. Because what I'm going to give to you today in this 14th segment is a truth that is probably going to rock you if you are brought up in American civilization where it's all about control and all about what you want out of life and you are the one who gets to determine your steps that, that, that's how it is in American Christi- Christianity and we can We can talk about it all we want to, but the reality is this is what it has turned into. And somehow many people have justified it. And that will make sense in a little bit because Jesus even predicted it. So let's get into this verse. I've heard this many times. I remember listening to a pastor one time who was talking about this verse. And he was talking about in concepts of building a church. 
And while there can be some extractions from this passage and conceptual um, understanding from it that could be applicable to that, it is not what the context of this passage is, as we're going to find out in verses 3 through 5. I've heard many people use this passage as simply just building their business or building whatever it is that they want to do. They want God to bless it. And so they just say, Lord, we give you the reins to do with this what you want because unless the Lord builds the house, the builder builds in vain. And we don't want to build in vain. We want it to be blessed. So Lord, you do this according to what you want and you build this business. Well, let's look at what the context of this passage actually is. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. Now, not to be confused with sleep as far as like eyes shut, you know, laying in bed type sleep. It's more so referencing rest, peace. He goes on, he says this, and pay very careful attention because this is now indicating what the context of this passage is. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, this is one of the shortest psalms in all of the book of Psalms. It's only five verses. And yet somehow, in today's modern Christianity, specifically in America, we have, seek, we have successfully eliminated the contextual aspect of the passage when three-fifths of it talk about the context. And we have stripped it. It's become about what we want to build, our own Tower of Babel, if you will. But the context of this passage is specific to children. Even in the first verse, it's specific to children. Here's what I mean. It says, unless the Lord builds the house. The Hebrew word for build is the Hebrew word bana. And it means to establish or to build. It also has a connotation in the definition. This is not me Inputting what I want the context to be. This is actually in the definition of both the Thayers and the Strongs. To obtain children or to construct a family. So unless the Lord builds, unless the Lord is the one who has authority over and is given the access to, to increase your family and build it as he sees fit, everything you do is in vain. Going on, the word for house is the word baith. And it means house or household. But it especially, according to the Strongs, it especially references the family. So you have nestled in right within the very first verse the context of what the author here is trying to establish. Unless God has the authority to build your family, to obtain children within that family, to increase that according to His will and not your own, and everything you do is in vain. All the effort that you put in to rise up early and to go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil, you will not have 
rest. Unless God is the one who has the reins of the size of your family, how your family is constructed, how you function as a family. If it is not in line with God's word, then you can work as hard as you want to. It will not provide the rest that it will or even the success that it will if God's the one who has the reins. Now just to kind of prove to show you that in um, this word that's used for house is contextual to family. Genesis 7.1 Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your baith, household. For I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You can go into Genesis, the same as that word. I'm just going to do a couple of them because they're all over the place. And, and this isn't to say that it can't reference a physical house. So I think primarily when you understand it as the people in a household... It makes a lot of sense in a lot of the passages. And I'm not saying that it can't reference a house. What I'm saying is that the context of Psalm 127 is overwhelmingly evident to children and the family. But here's another one. Genesis 20 verse 18. For the Lord has closed all the wombs of the house by Eth of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So just off the cuff, two references in Scripture that very clearly define house as family. And so you could very easily look at this, unless the Lord obtains or gives the obtaining of children, unless He is the one that has the authority to do that. And you might say, let me just back up real quick before I even continue. You might say, well, God's the one who opens and closes the womb. Well, you're right. He is. But how many blessings are you refusing from God simply because you're not giving him the control? Because oftentimes, a lot of times people talk about that God is completely 100% sovereign over all things. I disagree. I think he could be. But I think he chooses not to be. Because one of the things that I see echoed throughout all of Scripture over and over and over is that God has a restrained sovereignty. It's not that he couldn't be sovereign over it. It's that he chooses to not violate the free will of man. Therefore, if you or if he has blessings he wants to give to you, meaning through the womb, but you're sticking a hand in his face or you have a surgery that says you can't do it or you're just putting a hand in God's face saying, God, absolutely not. I'm not doing anything. I'm not going to let you increase the womb. Then God says... Okay, I had some blessings I wanted to give to you, but you weren't willing. It's not that he isn't able. It's just he's not going to violate the free will of man. Proverbs 14, verse 1. And I think this is an important one because once you understand what bana and baith mean, then this might make more sense. The wisest of women builds her house. But folly with her own hands tears it down. What is this passage stating? It says the wisest of women is going to be the one who focuses on her family and allowing God to care for through her, using her as a vessel to care for the family that he's given to her and yielding her womb up to the Lord for him to determine the amount of children or arrows that she will have. That's the wisest of women. She builds her house. She focuses on what God wants to do through her in her family. To be a blessing for them. And to allow her womb to be an, an open womb to say, God, you fill with whatever you want. And you know what? Here's, here's the reality, lady, ladies. God might tell you no. 
This isn't a foregone conclusion that you're just going to have 15 children. God might say, no. Are you okay with that? Because here's the reality of what this passage is stating. It's not about building your business or building your church, though there's conceptual or contextual concepts that are there within that. It's not the context of the passage. It's about yielding control to Him. That's what it's about. And I'm going to get into a verse that's going to challenge you here in just a little bit as to whether or not you truly are a worshiper of the Lord. And I want you to stay with me on this one because, again, this might step on your toes, but this might be one of the best steppings you might ever, ever come encounter with. And this isn't just reference to women. I know a lot of women who want to have another baby in their marriage, but the, the, but the husband is like, absolutely not. Let me just tell you, you're going to be judged for that. Husband, you're going to be judged for that. Look what he says in Malachi chapter, um, <coughs> excuse me, chapter 2, verse 15. Now, before we go to that one, I want to go to another passage in Genesis because I'm going to ask you the question, what was the purpose of marriage when God instituted it in the very beginning? I'm going to read it in a little bit because I already know the answer, but I'm going to ask you to just be mulling over the thought within it. What was the purpose of marriage? Why did God join man and woman together in the concept of marriage. Yes, it's a foreshadow. Yes, it moves forward and shows us Christ and His church. And ultimately, that's what it was shining a beacon towards, was to show us about the union of Christ and His church. That has the greater glory. As it even talks about, I think it's in Ephesians 5.32, when he says, A man shall leave his father, mother, and hold fast to his wife. This mystery is profound. I say it refers to Christ and His church. So Christ and his church is the greater mystery. That's the greater revelation. The greater glory is attached to Christ and his church, not to the marriage covenant. That is a physical application. However, the parallel is the same. Physical to physical, spiritual to spiritual. The parallel is the exact same. What was God looking for when he joined man and woman? I'm going to give it into one word is the same thing that he was looking for when he joined the church unto Christ. And that is life. Physical life. Spiritual life. Here's how he identifies it in Genesis 1, verse 28. He says this. We've probably heard it many, many times. And God blessed them. Notice that the blessing came first. Then the command to be fruitful and multiply. Now I think that's important because a lot of people have, are having children out of wedlock. And they think that it's blessed of God. God's blessing came upon their union first. Then the command. So that means that you need to have the blessing of God through marriage. Before it is going to be blessed of God to be fruitful and multiply. But he says this, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So what is he saying? He says, look, the very first thing that he charges them, the purpose as to why he joined man and woman in a physical concept is to produce life. And he didn't just say, I want you to put a few little um, apples in the basket and just kind of 
add to your family. He says, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. Go and fill the earth. I think one of the problems that we have today is that Christians are content with their 1.5 children. Meanwhile, you've got other religions who consider it a blessing to have a lot of children. And they're popping out 6, 7, 8, 9. And they're raising their kids up in their religion. And now all of a sudden, we're having a whole bunch of Muslims that are growing to an extent beyond what Christians are. Simply because they're being fruitful and multiplying. We're content with our 1.5. He says, I want you to go and fill the earth and subdue it. The purpose of marriage was to produce life as a beacon that's shining for what Christ will produce in His church. Life. Go and make disciples. Go and spread the life of Christ to everyone that you encounter. Go. It's the same thing. Malachi chapter 2. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 15. And this is a, a rebuke that he's given here. And you can go back and read it starting in 13. But he talks about this concept in which he's rebuking them. And they don't understand why. They say it in verse 14. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Listen to what he says. A lot of people look at this as an adulterous passage. And while there could be some aspects to it, I don't believe the full context of it is revolving around adultery. I think it's a divorcing of one's pur purpose. The faithless that he's referencing here, I don't think is referencing a faithlessness of adultery. I think it's the faithlessness of doing what God has commanded them as a husband and a wife. Listen to what he says very carefully in verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. You see, the concept I believe that he's trying to get at there is that he's saying, I want you to remember what was the one God seeking when he joined man and woman together in matrimony, in marriage. What was he seeking? For you to go be fruitful and multiply. For you to go and produce life and life abundantly. As the man unto the woman, you are spreading your seeds through that woman to produce life. Just as God has done it through Jesus Christ in us. To produce life. I could take you back into Genesis and the story of Onan. You could look at this story that's there. Onan didn't want to produce life. He didn't want to, when his brother died, his wife was left there, and it was according to the custom, the law that was given, for Onan to go into her and to give her children. He didn't want that. So you know what he did? He wanted the fulfillment and the satisfaction of the deed. But before he would actually go, he would pull out and he would spill his semen on the ground. Because he did not want offspring. Let me just tell you, that has a whole lot of 
aspect for us today when it comes down to concepts like, you know, whatever it might be, um, contraceptions to where you're trying to control having children or not. You see, God looks at the seed of man and he says that has a purpose to it and you are violating that purpose, but you still want the pleasure. It didn't go very well for Onan. And I'm going to tell you, just as it was with Malachi, it probably won't go well with you either when you stand before him. You might not find the judgment here. You might just have a lack of blessing that God was going to pour out on you. But one day you're going to give an account before him, as 2 Corinthians 5.10 says. You're going to give an account. You're going to stand before him to receive an account for everything you've done in the body, whether good or evil. And I'm going to hopefully show you that, if I haven't already, that this would be considered evil. Let me ask you something. If God wanted to increase your wallet, what would you say? No strings attached on it. Simply just God came and he asked you the question. He said, my my child, do you want me to increase your wallet and what's in it? Would you want me to bless you like that? I don't know of anybody who's going to look at God and be like, no, 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 God, I really do not want any more money. I've got plenty. Don't worry about me, God. No, I don't know if I know a single person, even if they're not going to use it on themselves. Even if they're just going to say, no, I'm going to go and I'm going to bless people with it. God, of course, if you want to increase the size of my wallet, go ahead and increase the size of my wallet. And people would look at that and they would say a blessing. But why is it different with the womb? Why is your, your wallet open before the Lord for him to do what he wants to with it? But the womb you close and say, absolutely not, God. You can't have the womb. Let me just say something that's probably going to hurt and sting a little bit. Then you're not a true worshiper of God. And you might say, man, that's harsh. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you, go read Romans 12, 1 through 2 right now. I'm, I'm going to read it later on. But if you think what I just said was harsh... And it wasn't, it wasn't valid. It wasn't true. Then I'm going to tell you, go read Romans 12, 1 through 2. And may the Spirit open your eyes and your heart to the understanding of what that passage is stating. I think most people are going to receive that blessing in their wallet. Why don't we say that about children? It used to be considered a huge blessing and a sign of God's favor among His people. There's a guy, I forget what his name is, but he had a quote one time where he says, why is it that the very thing that the Bible calls a curse, we call a blessing, and the very thing that God calls a blessing, we call a curse? He was referencing the love of money and children. You see, many times people today, they might not ever say it with their mouth, but they do mean it by their actions that children are a curse. Oh, no, I've got my one or my two. I don't want any more. No, 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 I'm done. I, I can't handle any more. I can't because they're challenging. But yet the very thing that he says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. We consider it a blessing when God expands our wallet. You see, these things don't make sense. What they do is they show you where your heart really is. As Luke 13 or Luke 12, 33 through 34 says, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Your treasure is just in your wallet. It's not in the womb. 
You see, what this all comes down to is the, is the essence of control. You want control of your life. Well, let me just tell you then, he's not Lord of your life. And that is problematic. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 23, 29, whenever he talks about this concept, because he kind of predicted. He said, for behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. You see, as Jesus, whenever he's... Um, on the cross or, or during, during the crucifixion and people are weeping and he says I want you to understand there's going to come a time where people will be so selfish and so set on their own agendas of what they want out of life that they're going to actually be stating blessed are the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed but what does Psalm 127 say behold children are a heritage from the Lord the fruit of the womb a reward. It comes down to control. And people don't want to yield the control of their womb. And that's problematic. He even talks about the concept of the quiver. And I've heard that a, a full quiver is five. Some people say that it's more than that. Some people might say it's three. Some people might say it's seven or nine or whatever. I guess I blew all those out of the water because God's given me and my wife eleven. Eleven blessings that are challenging, but I consider them a reward. A reward for faithfulness to Him, to yield our bodies up to His control and to say, God, you do with us whatever you want to. And God has rewarded us with eleven children. And I have to try to remind myself that whenever the disobedience and the fits and all the rebellion, the things that they go through as they're figuring out life begin to hit on a daily basis and you feel bombarded with sometimes the responsibility of praying for them and leading them and teaching them and nurturing them and disciplining them. Yeah, it's challenging. But they're a reward. They're a blessing. The Bible calls them that. But somehow we've changed and flipped the script to where we say, oh yeah, they're a blessing, but I don't want any more. Well, then they're not really a blessing to you. Just I, I, This is probably one of the podcasts. I'm, I'm usually pretty straightforward. I'm usually pretty black and white. And this just might be one of those that I just, there's no way around it. I'm saying some things that might really penetrate. They might really hurt. They might sting. But I pray it stings you with conviction unto repentance. Sometimes that's the only way. You got to get a bloody nose before you're going to actually change. Sometimes you got to feel the sting of your sin. I think we we've gotten pretty good as the church today of trying to eliminate the sting of sin. But that's exactly what this is. But a lot of people talk about this concept of the quiver, what's full. And when I was researching this several years back, I found it interesting that actually there really is no such thing as a full quiver. There's no set predetermined number. It's not five, it's not three, it's not seven, it's not eight, it's not twelve, it's not fifteen, it's not twenty. The concept of a full quiver, and I thought this was fascinating, it depends on the, the job description of which the archer is going to have. 
If you're going to be in the infantry, if you're going to be on the ground, then you have a different set number of arrows. If you're going to be up in the trees as a sniper, you have a different set number of arrows. If you're going to be somebody who is, you know, going into the battle in, in a way that's going to be distinct or different, you might have a different requirement of arrows that you need to cover or, or carry with you. There's no such thing as a predetermined number of arrows, and I will tell you this, and there is no such thing as an archer who determines the amount of arrows that he has, but the commanding officer who's detailing him to the work. And I find that fascinating because you and I don't get to determine how many arrows a full quiver is. God does. He's the one who has detailed to us what our job description is as an archer in his army. And he's going to determine how many arrows need to be in there, what is a full quiver. The worst thing you and I could do in that capacity is to say, hey God, I only need three or four arrows. <laughs> and sadly, to a lot of people, that's an abundance. You know, when Jen and I got past the number three or four, that's when we started getting the looks at the grocery store. That's when we started getting people coming up to and asking, don't you guys know what causes that? And we, we get questions like that all the time. Don't y'all have a TV? You know, all kinds of stuff that's asked us. Let me just ask you, if you were in, in, the, will, in, the, in the woods and say all you had was your bow and arrows and you had a quiver and you wanted just two, Put in there. And you're walking through the woods and you know that it's bear infested, it's mountain lion infested. There's all sorts of things that are in those woods that could come back and get you. Are you still only going to want two arrows? You see, the problem is, is we've forgotten that we're in a war and we've forgotten that we're in God's army and we're for, we've forgotten and we aren't to live as civilians. We're to live as soldiers. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.4 says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits and his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. He just asks you, Do you realize that you're a soldier? And if you do, do you realize that your aim should be to please the one who enlisted you? It's not about you getting to determine what pleases you. It's about you coming to your commander and officer and to say, what do you have as my job description and how many arrows do you want to give to me? And God will determine what the full quiver is for you. That might be one. He might say, I'm only going to give you one because of your job description. And he might say, I'm going to give you 11. The point is, it's not how many you get in the quiver that determines it. It's the yielding of your quiver up to Him that is what's pleasing to Him. Because it's not about pleasing you and I. 1 Timothy 5.14, let's just look at a couple verses as to what Paul writes about as a role of women within the church. In verse 14, he says, so I would have younger widows marry. And then he says this, as a result of them being married, these younger widows who are not to be enrolled in the program of the church, but are to actually go out and find them a suitable husband who loves the Lord. And he says this, so I would have younger widows marry. And then he says this, bear children. Isn't that fascinating that Paul says that a, a command within scripture is to go and bear children? Like if it was just up to you, then, then he probably wouldn't say anything at all. 
I would just have younger widows married and enjoy their husband, enjoy life, and enjoy you know whatever the seasons bring to them. But he doesn't. He specifies, I want these younger widows to go and marry and then bear children and manage their households and give the, the adversary no occasion for slander. Don't give them a foothold. You go out and you marry, you bear children, you manage your household. That's your job. Because if you violate that and you go outside of that as a wife and as a mother, then you are blaspheming the word of God as Titus 2, 3 through 5 says. And you're giving the devil a foothold in your life. I'm not saying it's what Paul wrote in scripture. You don't believe me. Let me flip back to chapter 2, verse 15 and another passage oftentimes people don't ever look at. And they don't understand it. They just kind of, as I was giving an analogy to some guys I meet with on Wednesday morning, we like to, you know, when we're kids, we get told that we need to clean our room. And so we, we organize what looks good on the outside of what we're comfortable with cleaning, we're comfortable with dusting, we're comfortable with, with sweeping. But all the stuff we don't really want to put where it, back where it belongs, what do we do? If you're an American kid, you probably know what you do. If you're a parent of an American kid, you probably know what they do. You walk in there and you're like, oh, this, this actually doesn't look too, too bad, Betty Sue. You're doing a pretty good job, little Timmy. And then you go to the closet and you open it up and chaos is in there. 1 Timothy 2.15 is the one that a lot of people put in the closet. It's the verse that a lot of people don't know what to do with. They don't want to do anything with it. They don't want to study with it because they surely it doesn't mean what it says. So we just stick it in the closet and think nobody will find it. Here's what he says. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Why would Paul write that right after he talks about the concept of Adam and Eve and he talks about the woman and her role? He says, and and this word for childbearing is one that simply means to rear up children, to raise them, to train them, to manage your household, if you will. And he says, and they will be saved through childbearing if they continue in the faith. I can tell you exactly what it means. Paul says, That if you don't walk and function in your role as a wife or as a mother, specifically, your salvation could be in question. That's what he's saying. To continue in the faith means that you're in it. But nonetheless, she will be saved through childbearing of staying in her role and not giving the devil a foothold to lure her away just as he did with Eve. So this is a big concept, guys. It has far-reaching tentacles. The Psalm 127 passage is as simple as it gets of what its terminology is. We just like to extract the context so we can make it say what we want to. And that's what many people do with it. And I'm going to read to you Romans chapter 12, 1 through 2. And I want you to pay very close attention to this because I could have gone in many different ways. I could have talked about, you know, the concept of Abraham and Sarah trying to take matters into their own hands instead of trusting and relying on God to build his house. 
And instead, he went through, Ish- he went through Hagar at, at Sarah's word. I could have gone through that. I could have gone through, was it Rebecca who was talking about how she wanted, uh, or Rachel, I'm sorry, who she wanted children. And she cries out, give me children or I die. Because Leah was getting blessed with being able to be a mother. But Rachel wasn't able to have any. And then God opened her womb. And back and forth they went. Or I could go back and talk about Elizabeth and John the Baptist and Mary and Jesus. And you could go back even to the Old Testament again where you talk about, and and the name is escaping me, but um, Samuel's mom and and why I can't think of her name, I, I don't know. But Samuel's mom, if she's praying at the altar and Eli comes up and he thinks she's drunk because she's praying so fervently for God to just give her a child. But today, you don't find many women who have that heart towards children. Let me just tell you, I used to want two. When Jen and I first got married, she wanted six, I wanted two. I was raised in the American culture. And after Corbin was born, he was borderline colic for the first six months, which means that he cried all the time. And after that, I was like, I'm done. I told Jen, I'm done. She she went down to three. She was like, I don't want six now. But here's the thing that did it. When I began to realize that it says that God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, you know what that means? It means that God wants a lot of children. Because anyone who comes to a knowledge of the truth and gets saved becomes a child of God, an adopted member into his family. He wants a big house. He wants the big baith. And I began to realize as I grew closer to the heart of God and I began to understand the text, I began to understand that if God's heart wants and desires children, then mine should too. Now that might look differently for different people, but again, it doesn't matter. It's not about how many you have. It's about yielding the control of your womb to God. He might give you one. He might give you 20. The point is, you are a soldier in His army. And your spiritual act of worship is presenting your body as a living sacrifice to Him. Because if you are not doing that, then that means you cannot be a true and sincere worshiper of God. Romans chapter 12, 1-2a. through 2a. I'll just read that for right now. I appeal to you, therefore... Which right there, right before that, he says this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. Does that include your womb? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. Listen, ladies. You could translate wombs just as easily as you do bodies. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, or you have a footnote there that could say your, your reasonable act of service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing or the renewal of your mind. What this is, is an attempt for the Spirit of God to renew your mind. You might have been conformed to this world. You might be following the pattern of this world and what everybody else deems when it comes to the womb. You might just be following script of what everybody else does. But I'm here to tell you the Word of God teaches you something different, that you need to be transformed. 
to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him. It is really only your spiritual act of worship or your reasonable service because Jesus himself did not spare his body for our sake. And we shouldn't either. So no more of this, I'm through, I'm done. Now what if the church began to just say, God, here I am. Use me. Use us as as a husband and a wife. Use my wife's womb as you see fit, Lord. Increase our offspring. Increase our family. You can alone are the one who are going to have the sole authority to determine how many children we will have. And we won't take matters into our own hands. We will let you have the reins. We will let you have control. And you can construct this family both in quantity but also in quality. And we will raise this family and these children. We will live in accordance with your word as you tell us in your word. That's what it means in Psalm 127. Because you can do everything according to what you want and as you want it. But you will never have the rest that God wants to give to your soul. So what will it be? You yield control to a holy God who loves you and has plans for you that are good plans and He wants to bless you. Or are you going to hang on to the rain simply because you want your womb to belong to you? The choice is yours. Y'all be blessed.